Yeah, good morning. I'm Jason Dunn. I'm the executive pastor here at K2. So this morning we're going to be starting a new series called Think About This. Uh, for the next three weeks, a few of us will be challenging you to think deeply about something. Now for me, I have to confess, I've been a bit of a truth seeker my whole life. I was born a skeptic and for any truth claim that was put before me, I have to poke it, prod it, wrestle it to the ground. By the way, I noticed a few of you were doing that this morning on the truth questions, right? If you got it wrong, especially. Mark, did you get them all? No. Okay, a few misses, yeah. If you missed something, I noticed, you know, hey, I want to test this. I want to make sure maybe you Googled it, but that's good. I think we all need to be seeking and definitely verifying the truth. In fact, last year at K2, if you were here with us last summer, we went through a whole series called From the Head to the Heart where we tackled several of the truth claims of Christianity. We looked at the resurrection and its evidence. We looked at science, faith, and several other issues. So we want to kind of pick back up in that spirit today and talk about uh, the reliability of the Bible. So I want to talk about that for two reasons. One, at K2, and really throughout the worldwide community of faith, the Bible is really a fundamental foundation of our faith. But two, there seems to be kind of a growing skepticism uh, throughout the country about the Bible in our culture today. And you can see this pretty much everywhere you look if you're, if you're looking for it. Definitely in the mainstream media. It's pretty common to have around, especially around Christmas and Easter time, some magazine covers that are like, like this one, how true is the Bible, you know, poking a little bit. Uh, or is the Bible fact or fiction? Uh, you see these type of things pretty regularly. Now, I, these guys are probably trying to sell magazines and they get a little sensational and I get that. But even if you look at some of the more respected data out there, uh, there's a pollster named George Barna, who's a very respected pollster in the area of, of Christian faith and beliefs. He just finished a study about two years ago called The Bible in America, Six-Year Trends, uh, looking at kind of where are Americans going as a function of time on uh, their beliefs on the Bible. So one of the questions he asked is, is the Bible accurate in all the principles it teaches? And from, 16, sorry, from 2011 to 16, this is sort of trending down from 48% believing that strongly down to 33%. And then if you look at this over generations, this is maybe even a little bit more concerning. Uh, he asked, is the Bible the actual word of God? And amongst the elder generation over 70, 29% believe that. But amongst millennials, like half as many believe that, only 14%. So some interesting trends out there. Now finally, I'd like to turn to uh, what I consider that, that high tower, that bellwether of uh, spiritual authority. GQ magazine, right? Most of you look to GQ for spiritual insights, right? Learn a little bit about the Bible, get some grooming tips to embrace that inner manscaper in all of us, right? But, uh, I don't usually read GQ, as you could probably tell, but um, I did read this article. It was the 21 books you don't have to read, okay? You don't have to read. And uh, wouldn't you know it, the Bible kind of highlighted their list uh, they gathered all their, the best knowledge of GQ together, and they described the Bible as uh, foolish, repetitive, and ill-intentioned at GQ. So, ouch. Uh, how are we going to recover from the GQ insight? Uh, now, I don't expect a ton of biblical reverence from GQ, but if I were to come to this audience, mostly believers, and ask you, hey, do you see the Bible as a reliable basis for your faith? I think you'd say yes. Um, but if I were to double down and ask you why, why do you believe the Bible is a reliable basis 
for your faith, what would you tell me? What would be your response? What would you say to a non-Christian friend if they came up and said, hey, at K2 I hear every Sunday you talk about the Bible. Why do you do that? Why do you believe it's reliable? Um, Now, famous apologist uh, Josh McDowell, you may have heard of him. He wrote the Evidence That Demands a Verdict series. He actually traveled the country uh, for decades to hundreds of groups. And a question he would regularly ask is, why do you believe the Bible is reliable if you believe it's reliable? And he usually got one of two answers. One was just the honest answer, I don't know, which I think, you know, I, I definitely appreciate the humility in, uh, in that response. If we don't know, we should say we don't know. But I think we all need to be sort of reasonably challenged by 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter asks us to always be prepared to give an answer, a reason for the hope that we have. And so one major goal for me today is to give us some good reasons to believe the Bible is reliable, trustworthy. But two, and probably even a more popular answer is, hey, why do you believe the Bible is true? And they would answer, I have faith the Bible is true. I just believe in, in that the Bible is reliable. Now, again, at one answer, I, you know, I appreciate this answer. I think we all need a growing faith in the reliability of the Bible in our lives. I think for most of it, that works like, you know, we put trust in the Bible. We do what it says. Our life goes better. Okay, this is the... The, ro- the, the, the roadmap, a guideline God gives us for how to live, when we follow that, peace follows, freedom follows. So I think it's reasonable to have a growing faith in, in the claims of the Bible. But just don't be surprised if you give that as your reason to an unchurched person or a non-believer to say, you know, I have faith the Bible is true. That may not be all that compelling an answer to them. And they may find it, you know, downright annoying. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, your subjective faith is just not going to be feel all that objective to them. That's your experience, not theirs. And then two, they likely have quite a bit of experience with well-intended people around them believing things that they think are crazy or easily identifiable as not true. And in fact, you've all had those experiences yourselves. Um, for me, kind of the most impactful version of this was when I was in my 20s, a couple decades ago, I was working through my own faith questions. And on March 26, 1997, the world woke up to news that 39 members of a UFO cult called Heaven's Gate had committed mass suicide near San Diego. Were any of you around and remember this? Wild news and a really uh, interesting story. These members had all left their families had followed two charismatic leaders named T and Doe in their writings. The group's beliefs were so strong that most of the male members of the group had willingly castrated themselves to more um, conform to the androgynous alien ideal that they felt they were going to be transformed to in the next life. And on that faithful day in 1997, 39 of them dressed up in their away team uniforms. Uh, They drank a toxic mix of barbiturates and alcohol. And, uh, and all killed themselves, believing that there was a spaceship waiting for them behind the comet Hale-Bopp that was going to pick them up and transport them to their version of heaven. Okay? So, some fairly wild claims here. And, and why do I bring this up? It's, it's a somewhat extreme and upsetting example, but we can't argue that these folks didn't have faith in what they were doing. 
I mean, they had as much faith or more as any of us in the room. They gave their lives to this cause. But the problem, as we would describe it, is their beliefs were wrong. They didn't have good reasons to believe in, in what they were doing. So, again, today I really want us to walk away with some great reasons to believe the Bible is true and reliable. So let's get going on that. So, if we're going to believe the Bible is reliable, we need really two things. We need it to be accurate and true. Accurate and true. And I'll take those one at a time. Let's actually start with accurate. So accurate means that what we have written down today in the Bible is the same as what was written down originally. Okay? And uh, so the first question people often have is, how can we really know that what was written down 2,000 years ago is the same as what we have today. Now, luckily, scholars, by and large, agree on how to test that, how to uh, look at an ancient document and test its reliability. It's actually called the bibliographic test. You know, so it really doesn't matter how old a document is, per se, if it's to establish its accuracy. What you do is you put it up against two tests. So, test number one is really how much time has elapsed between when the original was written, that's usually called the autograph, and the date of the first copy. And what you want here is for the time to be short, for the time to be minimal, okay? Uh, if, the, if that time is short, there's less time to meddle, to change. You can question the original authors and eyewitnesses about what was going on and verify what was going on. And then two, you ask yourselves, how many copies of the original are there? And you want more copies. I mean, at the time, there was no printing press. Okay, we're pre-Gutenberg in the 1400s. And so, everything was copied by hand. And inevitably, as somebody was copying these down, occasionally, there'd be basically a typo. I guess that's a righto, is that right? Uh, just made that up on the spot. Uh, you'd misspell a word, or get the punctuation wrong, or you're falling asleep, amongst the, you know, and you skip a, skip a line or something. So, if you have just two copies and they didn't agree with each other, you really wouldn't know which one was right. But with many copies, let's say you have 100 and 99 of them all say the same thing, and then there's just one with a misspelling, you can triangulate the truth quite easily there when you have many, many copies. And the good news is, for the New Testament of the Bible, it has the best manuscript evidence in the ancient world by far, and there's really nothing even close. And uh, let me just illustrate this with a couple examples here. So if you look at a, a typical ancient document, say something by Plato. Uh, Plato had a, a book called the Tritologies. This is where you would find, uh, for example, his dialogues. So this was written in 400 BC. Uh, the day the earliest copy was all the way out, though, at almost 900 A.D., 1,300 years later. And this is fairly typical in the ancient world for there to be a big gap between when it was written and the first copy. And then the quantity of copies was about 200 or so. Okay? And so, this is still fairly reasonable manuscript evidence. I mean, you probably never walked into a philosophy class and your, your, your teacher started with, hey, we have no idea what Plato wrote down, right? I mean, this is still reasonable evidence for in the ancient world. But if, in contrast, if you look at the New Testament and the manuscript evidence there, the New Testament was written between about 50 and 90 AD. The earliest manuscript is actually 
125 A.D. Only 35 years, it was, it was a portion of the book of John, after the New Testament was written. Tiny gap of 35 years, with many of those copies being in the first 100 and 200 years after, after the book was written, uh, compared to the 1,300 years for Plato. And then the number of copies was 25,000, just a staggeringly huge amount of manuscript data. With this many copies and such early copies, scholars regularly describe the Bible as definitely the most accurately transmitted document in history. And according to those, again, these two tests, there is no equal. Now, one other note. Even if we had lost every single one of these copies at some point, everyone was burned or lost or, or gathered up and, and taken, we'd still know what the New Testament says. This, this document was so well referenced, um, it was cited, almost every verse of it, but a dozen verses, in the works of the, of the early church fathers. And so you could still reconstruct the entirety of the New Testament with none of these copies. So, uh, amazing, amazing evidence for the, the New Testament's accuracy. And, and that's great. I mean, I want this to be an accurate uh, book I'm looking at when I read it. But probably even more important is that it's true, okay? Something that's been accurately transmitted that's a bunch of lies would not be all that useful to us and something we could disregard and should disregard. So even a, a more important test of the New Testament is, is it true? Uh, is what the eyewitnesses and apostles wrote down in the New Testament true? And uh, now I want to be really clear on this point, actually. A majority of the New Testament writers were apostles and eyewitnesses of, of, of Christ, meaning they walked around with him for a few years and lived with him. They were there when he was taken off to be killed, and they were there when, when he came back from the dead. Okay, and so when you, some people hold the position that these New Testament writers maybe were just nice guys who had some interesting things to say, some interesting teaching, but the reality is there's only a few options of what they could be up to. Either A, they told the truth about what they saw, Two, collectively, they had a mass delusion where they all saw the same dead guy come back to life, okay? Which would be really tough statistically to pull that off. Or three, they were just flat out lying. They, they concocted one of the biggest conspiracies in history for some reason, okay? You know, and, and how big is, is, would the conspiracy be? Well, like... Uh, way beyond a vast right-wing conspiracy, okay? Uh, we're talking like a fake a moon landing type uh, conspiracy. And why? Because the scope of the Bible is so huge when it comes to several variables. I mean, the Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years, 66 different books, 40 different authors, written on three different continents in three different languages, okay? That's a vast scope of time in geography and authorship. And yet, when you look in on this book, what you see is an amazingly consistent story from start to finish of God's created us with a purpose. We rebelled against God, had a need for a redeemer, a need for a savior to reconcile us back to him. The Old Testament predicts and prophesies the nature of this redeemer we need. 
And then the New Testament introduces the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, as, uh, as the last player in, this, in God's plan. Now, if you have friends that are in this Bible is a conspiracy camp, they're really forced to explain the following about, about the conspiracy. Number one is, who coordinated this massive conspiracy over a period of 1,600 years? And how did that work? Because the level of collusion that would be needed to do that would just be massive. All those details, all those people, all that coordinated. I mean, who was the committee chairman who tackled that, right? Uh, talk about the worst assignment in history. How did they get organized? How did they keep meeting minutes? Did they use Google Notes? Uh, I hope not. I hate that program. But, uh, uh, I mean, there was no Google. There was no email. There was no snail mail. If, uh, if Zachariah and Amos wanted to get their story together, one of them probably would have had to, well, literally march their butt across the desert for about a few weeks or a month, find them, share the story, get their org story organized. That's what they had possible in order to collude over all that time, all that space, all those continents, and all those languages. It, it's, it's a massive collusion effort. But even if you could pull off that impressive conspiracy, why in the world would you choose to include so many embarrassing details about the heroes of our faith? Why would you do that? If you could go conspiracy mode and you were just making something up to impress people and cause them to follow you, would you really include the embarrassing details in the Bible? I mean, Moses, the first uh, the deliverer of the Egyptian, God literally appears to him in a burning bush and tells him, hey, here's my plan for you. You're going to deliver these people? What did he respond? Forget it. He made up every excuse in the book. Can't do it. Not good enough. Go find somebody else. Uh, I'm not a good public speaker. You know, have Aaron do it. Uh, David, uh, probably the most famous and mighty king of the is Israel, turns out to be uh, a murderous adulterer. Peter, the rock on which the church is built, at the key moment in time, right when Jesus is being taken off to be killed, uh, but, but, but rise again. Uh, Peter denies him three times. Uh, for the resurrection, clearly the most important event in human history, the first witnesses of the resurrection are women, which you would never do in that time if you were going conspiracy theory. Culturally, at the time, the testimony of women wouldn't have been accepted, would have been thrown out in a court of law. You wouldn't have conspired to do that. The New Testament writers wrote it down that way because that's what happened. And, uh, and uh, when you see these embarrassing details, it's strong evidence of authenticity, right? Not conspiracy, authenticity. Now finally, and I think most importantly, um, why would the original apostles all willingly die for something they knew was a lie? I mean, this isn't thought about often enough, I think. You see... For the original 12 apostles, they were unleashed after Christ's resurrection and ascension to go around the world in the Great Commission to spread the gospel, and they did. But um, according to tradition, the deaths they died, crucifixion, beheading, uh, stoning, burned, uh, pierced by spears, uh, every one of them died a, a brutal death for their faith, uh, except John, he was just exiled to an island, actually, so he got let off easy. But um, Now, we know that people are willing to die for something that they think 
is true. That was the example in the Heaven's Gate folks. But I can't come up with an example, and you can't either, of a group of people in history who willingly all plunged to their deaths for something that they knew was a lie. And the apostles, having lived with him, would have known it was a lie. Okay? So taken together, the conspiracy angle just, it just falls apart, leaving us with the reality that, the God, that these apostles really were telling the truth. All right, now, I know not everyone is uh, kind of built skept skeptically, like, like myself. Uh, many more just approach the Bible from uh, more of a mystical point of view, which I think is good. I have those inclinations myself. That, uh, the mystic asks the question, hey, this book claims to be inspired by God, right? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scriptures God breathed. So their question is really, is there any good evidence of the Bible's supernatural nature? Uh, and I think that's a fair question. Um, to answer this question, I want to actually try to talk you through the greatest discovery in the history of biblical archaeology. So um, if you're like me, when you start thinking about famous discoveries in archaeology, right, visions of... Indiana Jones start popping through my head, right? He's swinging from a vine into a snake pit. Somehow there's a giant ball rolling through whatever place you're in. I, you know, giant pinball machine. But uh, the story of the greatest discovery in biblical archaeology really has a, a much more mundane start, <laughs> a little bit humbler start. It actually starts in, uh, in 1946, about one mile from the Dead Sea. Dead Sea is the big sea at the bottom of Israel over on the West Bank. And near the Dead Sea, there's a series of uh, caves called the Caves of Qumran. Uh, and in that region, um, in 1946, there was actually some Bedouin teenagers that were out herding goats. And one of the, one of the teenagers lost a goat. Uh, started looking around. Before you know it, he was near the entrance of a cave like this. Thought the goat may have wandered into the cave. So the bright idea was to, hey, I'll grab a rock here, throw it into the mouth of the cave, and the goat will come scurrying out. Well, he grabbed the rock, threw it into the mouth of the cave, but instead of hearing a meh, he heard a the sound of pottery smashing. Went in to investigate, and there was smashed pottery, a smashed clay jar in there, with a scroll inside. And that was kind of the start of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Very famous treasure trove of, of biblical archaeology. Now, if you haven't heard of these, it's a pretty amazing find. Uh, in time, over the next couple of decades, they actually explored about 10 plus of these, these caves, pulled out over a thousand well-preserved documents well-preserved, why? Well, it's good to be down in a cave, right? It's kind of a climate-controlled environment rather than in the baking sun of the Mediterranean. And then within that climate control, they were in, in little, most of them in, in jars. So kind of a climate within a climate. I mean, if these things were out in the baking sun, they would have lasted no more than a year. But these documents were preserved for over 2,000 years, and many of them very well. Um, they're the oldest copies of the New Testament in existence, dating back to 100 to 300 years before Christ. Okay? 
before Christ. So the oldest versions on record, in fact, they were a thousand years older than any other version of the Old Testament at the time, pushing the dating way back on the Old Testament. And the most famous specimen was a fully intact, 24-foot-long scroll of the entire book of Isaiah, dated back to before 100 BC. Okay? This, is a, this is a graphic of that scroll, okay, copied by hand. Okay? You imagine that? Talk about hand cramp. Uh, um, but this scroll, so famous, um, is now actually displayed in a museum in Jerusalem. It's called the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem. You can go there and see this. It's there in that central obelisk that's kind of wrapped around. So you can wrap around and see that entire scroll uh, and read it for yourself. Again, dated to uh, 100 years BC before Christ. Actually, that's just a copy. Uh, it's so valuable. The original's in the basement under armed guard, okay? So I don't want to false advertise there if you go, but they're not gonna let you in the basement to see the original. Well, so what? Um, interestingly, in that early Jewish community near the Dead, near the Dead Sea, near the caves, uh, the three most common books that people were carrying around with them, as evidenced by the Dead Sea Scrolls, were, were one, Deuteronomy. Why Deuteronomy, you suppose? Book of the Law, that's right. So that was the law they were carrying around. Second most popular book was Psalms, okay? Probably the Old Testament hymn book uh, and, uh, and poetry and inspiration. But by far, the most common book they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls with several entire scrolls and, and many, many fragments was Isaiah. Isaiah was the most popular book found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, you know, I think we know why. I think we know why. In the Old Testament, Isaiah gives by far the most profound, beautiful description of the coming Messiah, the prophecies about what the Redeemer would be like, that promised Savior, that perfect sacrifice that would eliminate the need for the Old Testament sacrifice system. And, you know, there are many specific prophecies in Isaiah about the coming coming Messiah. A famous one you've probably heard of is Isaiah 7.14. Uh, that one says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. The famous prophecy uh, of the virgin birth. But by far the most famous prophecy in the entire Old Testament comes in Isaiah 53. Uh, and it's often referred to as the prophecy of the suffering servant. Now, normally we don't read sections of Scripture this long, but I'd like to read a big chunk of Isaiah 53. And if you would, just, just narrow in on there and see how many predictions you spot about the future promised coming Messiah. So let's read this together. Isaiah 53, 2 through 11. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to their own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? But he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Did you see the predictions of the Messiah? Despised and rejected, he'd bear our sufferings, pierced, crushed, wounded, literally striped uh, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew language. He was innocent. He would be killed and put in a rich man's grave with the wicked, then would see the light of life. Now for the mystical among us, here's what we know. This scroll, this Isaiah scroll that has this prophecy on it that you can go read, has been scrutinized by every skeptic and scholar in the world, and every one of them would agree those words were written on that scroll before 100 B.C., 100 years before Christ was ever born. There's no way to fake that, folks. These prophecies were written down. And uh, the fact that Jesus so beautifully fulfilled so many of these prophecies, all of them, in fact, uh, are amazing evidence of his, the supernatural nature of the Bible's inspiration, but even more importantly, uh, amazing evidence of his incredible love for us, his sacrifice for us. You know, as we close this morning, may we be, may we be truly thankful for that sacrifice. Let's go ahead and pray. Yeah, Father, this morning, just we come before you and thank you for the amazing evidence that uh, you've left us with your word. Uh, for the inspiration that is, and how to live our lives, how to walk with you, Father. But more important, we thank you for Jesus, that he was born of a virgin, came and lived a perfect, sinless life, and was willing to die for us. But he had the power over the grave, and rose again, proved he was God, and uh, through that sacrifice, gave us a pathway to be reconciled back to you, and have a relationship with you, Lord. Together, Collectively, we thank you for that. And Lord, uh, we just love you and want to honor you with our lives as we begin worship this morning. Uh, in your son's name, amen.